Hey guys, just a couple reminders before we get start the podcast. If you haven't signed up for our Discord channel, please do so at MajordomoMedia.com. There's a link that will take you to our community. If you want to be a better parent, better cook, better diner, better at consuming culture in general, we have some great threads, great engagement, and some funny motherfuckers that uh, have some great insight, especially when they make fun of me, which is hilarious stuff. Uh, so please do so. Also, if you like delicious instant noodles, you should try the ones we make at Momofuku. They've been in development a long time. In addition to all the pantry items that we sell and create at Momofuku, the chili crunch, especially I'm partial to the black truffle chili crunch because it doesn't make sense why it's so delicious. I mean, and I'm saying that because it's good on just about everything I eat uh, and I have to buy some more. The salts, the savory salts, especially the soys, the tamaris, the whole pantry items available nationwide at places like Target and Whole Foods. If you don't live close by to a store that sells this stuff, you can visit us at shop.momofuku.com to get it mail ordered to you. So thank you again for all that support. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Ugg. Y'all know Ugg is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think Ugg season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from Ugg. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. Ugg has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the Golden Collection at Ugg.com. Show part of the Winter Podcast Network presented by Major Domo Media. Thank you, Yola Tango. As always, Yola Tango is on tour, as are many other fantastic bands. I haven't been able to check out any live music because I've been working a lot this summer on the road quite a bit. Just got back from Las Vegas. I've been in Las Vegas a lot. Atlanta, we're filming a TV show there. I was in New York, I was in Providence. I had a fantastic meal at, at King. James Mark is Ending his tenure uh, after 10 years in Providence of King and Restaurant North. Uh, shout out to him and his entire team. I had legit amazing meal. I don't eat like that very often in terms of the, the sheer deliciousness and love and care. You can just feel it. And, um, you know, he's on to his next chapter. So big shout out to the entire team there. Thank you for a wonderful meal at King. And Providence, what an awesome, awesome town. I haven't been to Providence in a long time. Anyway, I digress. Um, today's podcast is an interview with Chris Bianco, the great, great chef, one of the greatest chefs we've ever produced in America. He's also a close friend of mine. He's also a recent, newly minted, most outstanding restaurateur via the James Beard Foundation. He has also just opened up a, a Bianca Pizzeria in downtown Los Angeles at The Row. If you haven't been to The Row, check it out. I still haven't been to um, 
all the eateries there. You have John Yao with his Taiwanese tasting degustation menu. And now you're going to have Bianco Pizzeria. It just opened up. If you haven't had his pizza before, you know, I only recently had his pizza in Phoenix or his food in Phoenix. And again, Chris is more than just one of the best pizza makers in America, in the world. He's an amazing chef. He legitimately is an artist in how he thinks and how he cooks, how he expresses himself. I love him dearly. I've had his food all over America, and it was only recently have I had his food in his own restaurants in Phoenix, and I highly suggest you check them out. They are fantastic, and it's not what you expect. These places are built with love very, very much. There's no other word to describe it, and his food is made with love and care. And as great as a chef as he is, and this isn't a platitude, this is genuine. He's a better human being. That shit gets thrown around a lot, but Chris Bianco is just, you know, they broke the mold with him, and we are all better for it. One of my favorite interviews we've ever had on this podcast for a lot of reasons. So because of that, we're going to break this into two podcasts. We're not going to break the interview into two. Today, you're going to listen to the full Bianco interview on Monday, our following podcast. We're going to do a Bianco Decoded. I'm going to also basically decode, clearly, provide some footnotes, explain some things like some names of chefs that you may or may not be familiar with, why I say Chris Bianco is a modern chef, and, and, and I say that in a, a highest compliment. He, he is in the same vein, the same sort of spectrum of, say, a Pierre Gagnier, or that sounds crazy, but uh, how he thinks about food, how he is so passionate about food, how he expresses himself, extremely modern. And I mean that because how we should define what modern cooking is, not this molecular gastronomy bullshit. On the Monday episode, we'll get deeper into that conversation. And if you listen to this podcast, there's a bit about creativity. It's the best description of creating a dish or, or the form of creativity via food. And I think anybody that is into sort of creative ideas or having to express themselves in a variety of ways will find how Chris discusses making a dish that he came up with beautiful. It is such a beautiful description of how to come up, how he came up with one of my favorite dishes. And I'll let him, let him describe that himself. But I just wanted to give you fair warning about that. And there's one thing I've wanted to ask Chris in the interview that I didn't. And I'll probably ask him because I'm going to see him in, in, in a couple days. Does he eat crust of his pizza? Like I, I, I'm always nervous. Do you eat the pizza crust or not eat the pizza crust? If you're going to a pizzeria or a restaurant that is of note, because sometimes I see people not eat their pizza crust and I wonder, is that a, is that an offense or is that not the right thing to do? I've seen people not eat pizza crust. For example, when I'm in Japan and I go with some of my friends and we go to Sarenkan or, or Savoy or Pizza Studio, you know, some of the top, top Tokyo spots. When you travel that long to get there, you want to eat as many pizzas as possible, or even if you say you're Naples, and you try not to fill up on the crust. So you eat everything but the crust. I wonder, is that disrespectful to a pizza maker? But there is a point to be had in really any pizza 
Do you want to fill up on the pizza crust? Especially the, I'm not talking about the pizza where you have some ranch dressing, you're just dipping your crust in there or something like that. I'm just expressing a moment when you're eating high-end pizza, probably more of a Neapolitan style, and um, you're never not getting, you. listen, a Neapolitan pie to me is more than one. You have to have two per person. So if you have four people, you're basically eating six to eight pies. Sounds fucking crazy, but it's not. Six to eight pies for four people because it's about a pie and a half to two pies per person. And if you cut that up, that's six six to eight slices. So there's a lot of evidence if you're not eating all the pizza crusts. In our Ugly Delicious episode with Helen Joe, you know, she talks about her kid and, and she calls it pizza bones. Yeah. If you leave evidence behind, I think it can be a problem. Anyway, I, I sound like a crazy person talking about this, but um, well, I'll let you guys get into this interview I did with Chris Bianco and know that the next podcast, we are going to do a decoded and we're going to talk about a few other random things such as gatekeepers of what is good in this world because I just got back from a hotel, uh, like an airport hotel, and I had an f- amazing meal. When I say amazing, okay, I mean a really good meal. And I was more, when I say amazing, because I was amazed by it. And it, it was humbling because it wasn't like going to, say, Rome and Vecchia de Roma, where you know people talk about it, but I, I, I wasn't going in with any expectations. Here, I literally was just hungry. And I was with Doc, and we're in Atlanta, and we're filming a TV show down there, and it's late. And you, I'm not, it's not like, a, there's some restaurants that are fantastic in hotels, I wasn't expecting the restaurant that we ate at to be as good as it was. And I love that shit. I absolutely love that kind of shit. Anyway, I think it's a further discussion about who's the arbiter of what is good. Um, clearly, unique gatekeepers out there, but I'm more and more questioning even some of the professional end gatekeepers, but also more of the democratization of, of people going out there in the world via social media and just sort of talking about food like they're experts when a lot of their facts are wrong. And we'll get into that on the next podcast as well. And again, I don't mean this platitude, but it sounds like a platitude, but as great as a chef as Chris Bianco, he is a better person and I love him to death. So I was so happy and honored that he came onto the show. And this interview is beautiful and it's just two friends talking really. Here's my interview with Chris Bianco. We are we are speaking with the future freshman senator of Arizona, <laughs> Chris Bianco. Oh man, so crazy! Who, who I've been trying to say that uh, for anybody listening that is a, a a citizen of Arizona, they should write him in for the next senator oh, campaign with Sienema. Because I think that Jesus. the reality is Bianco could legitimately win. Oh my God, how scary would that be, man? That would be just crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. Because listen, you're on a roll here. You, you just won a Beard Award for the best, most outstanding restaurateur in the galaxy. Yeah, I, I don't know. I was I was thought I was gonna be uh, like the uh, that kind of La La Land moment when it was supposed to be moonlight kind of thing, and you got up there, and I, I don't know. It was. Uh, I mean, we all know none of that stuff matters. It wasn't. It's uh, just everything going on right now. It all feels. It all feels crazy. Just after the last couple of years, and. and um, I don't know. I'm. We'll see. So Senator, happy for you. 
So happy for you. I remember when you first won in 2003. I, I remember I remember being on that, that bus, Dave. I remember being on that bus. You had a party bus back that's in the right, day. That's right. That's right. It was uh, it was very tame. You know, just lots of lots of gay. We had some Gatorade, I think, and uh, <laughs> some soft drinks. And uh, it was a good time. Good time after all. Well, I, I'm glad that people are recognizing you as a restaurateur because they don't always... I can't spell always, it. Can't I know. It, I can't but... spell it. <laughs> they should recognize you as one of the best chefs out there. You ain't just a pizza dude. You're, you're, you are, you are, you're one of the greatest chefs we we've got. Oh, no man. bullshit. Come on, come on. Well, you, you know are. what? Whatever I got, it it really is from others. I mean, and I mean that sincerely. You know, like all my pals, whether it's you and APL and Mark Vetri and everything. You know, thankfully, these rub off on me, or just the things that we get to reinforce about. You know, I have a very narrow lane of, 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 of what I do or things I'm okay at. And I think one thing that I've learned to do is, is um, put things around me and people around me and knee pads and elbow pads if I stumble so I can, so I can operate and navigate in that lane. And I, I'll tell you this, Dave Chang, and I might have <laughs> told you this before, but I think, I think as a kid, I remember I didn't really need, I didn't really need much at all. I didn't need, like, if my parents went on a vacation, I didn't need a T-shirt. I didn't need nothing. What I did need to witness is love. You know, I think I needed to see love. It's like, you know, if someone tries to come at you when you're a kid, like your aunt with big red lipstick can smack you on the face, you don't want any part of that. But but it, it's like you want to be invited into that party, like your mom comes home or your dad comes up from work, vice versa, and you witness love, like you want to get in there, you know? So I think I'm very conscious of what my wife and what people I love or my friends to show the love more, not smother my kids, give them appropriate. Uh, I do, you know, obviously love the shit out of those kids, and and uh, when they, when they don't frust, frustrate me or me them, but I, <laughs> I but uh, but I think I think about that a lot. You know, same with my team. Like, what can I share with them? You know, they're all now, you know, at least cook as well as me. They can Google shit. They can set up a fucking Zoom thing, and they can do all that stuff. So what you know, understanding what we have to share with our peers or, or next generations, I think is something that I don't want to say it keeps me up at night, but I think about it uh, quite a bit. I mean, one of my favorite things to do is just hang with you and chat and talk. And I think people are getting a sense of this right now, but what I hope people do do is taste your food because what you've made is I, I've known you a long time, but it took me almost 20 years of knowing you to finally get to your restaurants uh, <laughs> recently. And you just don't anticipate that you said love. Your restaurants are in places that where on the outside, it doesn't look like what it's on the inside. You know what I mean? Yeah. From the artwork, from your dad, your, you know, God, God bless his soul. And just the food, like, how do you describe your food? You know what I mean? Because it's a vibe. It really is a vibe. You know, I think one thing early on, I know, I was always very insecure about everything in my life of myself. I mean, uh, you know this, but I'm not, and I'm not proud of it. I just share it with people um, because I am insatiable to learn. I dropped out of high school, 10th grade, because I didn't, I, I didn't feel like I had um, a path really to how I needed to, to comprehend, I guess, you know, so to speak. And so I, I think as I went forward and, and insatiable to learn things, I try to give people very quick, like if you didn't fucking understand the language or I mumbled too much, if you can imagine, or you could understand, man, if you were thirsty, I'm going to give you something. If you're hungry, 
I'm going to find out what you need and, and uh, I'm going to give it to you. And I think those were to me, like when I saw great architects or great artists or great chefs or great homeopathic physicians, they had one thing in common. They were reading what you needed. You know, the architect says, pop, pop, pop. You, you deposit this in my account. You come back in a year, dude, and I'll fucking build you a badass house. It's going to be the baddest house you've ever seen. And you're about to say something, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, no, you just trust me, man. I'm the, I'm the greatest architect. And you come back in eight months, and it's the most beautiful tower you've ever seen. Everything about it is what you didn't need. You know, like you might have had a kid with special needs. You might have had the greatest wine collection, and, and they put a big wine rack in a window because they wanted to see the bottles. Whatever it was, nobody really asked you what you needed. And I think what, what I'm trying to say what I, about my food is, is it's really your food. It's really about what you need it. Like, I always feel like when I cook for somebody or I do a restaurant, I don't like the word use the word concept because it sounds very clinical. But when I build a restaurant in my narrow lane, I think about four people. And can I get four people to a table? And can I get them all nodding their heads? Then I put it to six people, eight people, 10 people. What's the tipping point that you won't have too many people going fucking don't get it, you know? It's... uh a process of finding out with other needs and um, providing hospitality, like and even like in this project in LA right now, which is, um, you know, LA needs it like a fucking home ahead. I need it. And I said that a few and people said, what do you mean by that? Like, well, I, I needed it because I felt, you know, I did a project here, um, you know, a few years back. It was my brother, Chad, who I, I love dearly. I think we both found out that, you know, when there's a lot of people involved that have different agendas, you know, it's something just so massive. You're going to bring the sequel without the prequel. I think things can get confusing, you know? And I think if you got a hit, you got to play the fucking hits, you know? You got you to play what people, you know, came to see. And I think those things are hard to, you know, like comprehend sometimes for chefs because, you know, we might have made a dish a hundred times, just like you said, but someone might not be able to get to you for 20 years. So we want to move to the next thing. I think musicians, sometimes music's like that, where you're like, oh man, I'm a big police fan from back in the day and then you go see Sting bang on garbage cans for two hours and it's the greatest thing you've ever seen but it's not what you know you want to see Roxanne you know whatever in your mind so there's a little bit of you can take them there but you got to start here a little bit so does that make sense David Chang I don't know everything you say always makes sense I don't know man I don't know I'm <laughs> no, figuring man. it out I'm, I'm bouncing it around man I'm bouncing it around just trying to you know I feel I do feel I do feel maniacal right now in a way I've never felt before of, of saying shit. As you know me, I, 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 I'd rather send a too long text message than not enough. You're a prolific, you know? prolific long texture. And I always feel bad with my short replies because you know I can what? never. You know what? I love the short reply. <laughs> I, f- I feel intimidated by a long one unless I know that's what people need. You know, sometimes, you know, we have, we both have a lot of friends that are very short texts and some take too long and whatever, but I find I match that with the person and it's just exactly <laughs> what you expected. Like if you gave the long too much of them, what the fuck's going on with David Chang? <laughs> not him. Not him. It's like, you know what? It's like, it's like our moms or our dads, like no one wants perfect family. No, but, but I do feel compelled to tell people that a lot of things that, that I wasn't able to work out with people in skin and bone form that I work hard to understand that when they pass, you know, like some of my base relationships with people, you know, maybe I think about my grandparents, both of both my grandfathers in particular, that 
had pretty salty relationships with them, you know, like not salty, but like they didn't play, you know, I got too many stories about like moving a hammer out of the work, you know, the shelf he built with the hammer outline on it, you know, and if it was out of line, man, you get like, I don't know what your father's telling you, but this ain't, you know, this ain't how we do it. You know, it was always a lesson, a lesson. But as I sit with that and I, and I, I learned about growing up, you know, being Italian American immigrant, like any immigrant story, coming to a new city, going down to the docks, you know, getting paid in a barrel of beer on the Lower East Side, you know, and then raising, you know, raising a family. Then my dad, who was a, a, a you know, a, an artist from, you know, a family that, you know, are, you know, as my dad told it, you know, he had a one bedroom flat at 143rd Street in Willis Avenue in the Bronx. And the only art they had in their house, he said, was a fox, a stuffed fox that was biting, the, like was was catching a bird or some shit. And he used to scare the hell out of him, you know, so bad. But it wasn't like he was exposed to this thing, man, he got a shake of the DNA. You know, my dad, I'm telling you that because I think that sometimes like we both had people close to us past recently that, that you know, like skin and bone does get in the fucking way sometimes. You know what I'm saying? Like to to connect on a plane, like, you know, that shit we just don't understand. So try to try to go back and, you know, just just hear what people really meant to try to understand. I think as parents, just living long enough to see your parents as human beings instead of these people that came to your PTA meeting or some shit or legal league game or whatever and see, you know, the struggle. It's, it's, uh, it's humbling and powerful and, um, you know, makes me want to say all the stupid shit that I can and tell people that I love them. And, uh, no, no, nobody says I love you like you, Chris, man. And, and uh, you, I fucking mean it. I mean, it, I bro. know you do. I mean, it I, 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 I love that people can hear you cause this is you all the time. And, and, and I don't know if people quite understand it in that sense is you are legitimately thinking all the time about somebody else. I mean, most chefs, people in the hospitality are, but you take it to another level because that I think that's what drives you to actually be so knowledgeable about your craft from the people that grow your wheat to the ratio of how you want to do this dough. I mean, last summer you probably talked my head off about this potato recipe that you're saying. Oh, that was good. Yeah. That was it was that delicious. One. Because you were thinking about like something in the house, I might like it. You know what I mean? Like that's what you're trying to give to everybody at your restaurants. And I mean, that's just the truth. Well, I, I think I think thinking about other people, I think, is something that you know our kids do that obviously get us out of our own heads, and that's pretty. That was probably the most profound experience of getting us out of our own torment. But um, like for my mom, I felt uh, the need to be of service to others. You know, to be of you know, like, you know, she was always like, bro, you fucking get it. Not, not in those words, but you get, <laughs> you get it back tenfold. Like, don't look for it. If you ask, you'll never get, you know, like when you go out for a job, never tell them how much you want. Just be the harder workers there, man. You'll get it. You'll be, you, you like, I would say, you heard me say this more than a couple of times, but I can tell you I want to be, but only you can tell me who I am. You know, if you think I'm an asshole, therefore I am. And if you do tell me that, I'll, I'll tell you right now, I'm not going to block you. I'm going to tell you, man. Tell me what I did. I don't want to do that again. I don't want to do this to somebody else. And I look for forgiveness if I did something, you know, wrong somebody. And if if people are listening to this right now, I don't know if the first impression would be this guy is a fucking nerd about the specifics, the science, right? Like that's not what comes across. No. But you are. You you get granular on a level that uh, that would be befitting somebody if you did only like a super modern modern food. Which again, I don't think people understand that. You could be a modern chef. I think of Chris Bianco as a modern chef. 
because you arm yourself with science. I'm sure you didn't even think about it that way. You're a fucking super modern chef, but you, <laughs> you, 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 cause you arm yourself with a lot of information, a lot of history, a lot of science because you're constantly trying to make something fucking better and better and better. Well, I think it's a little bit of, you know, it's, it's like sports a lot. Like I've always been fascinated with the draft, any fucking sport. I'm like NBA draft is in two days. I'm fucking all over it. I love to see how wrong people are. I love to see how they critique people or, or, or just humanity in general and break it down. And, you know, um, and how wrong people usually are about people, you know, and how you can't really measure heart. And, um, you know, I, I, I see a lot of like in the sports analogy, people, uh, either super big on analytics and, and then other people that are fuck analytics. I'm a old timer. My gut, I'm like, you know what, bro? Give me some analytics. I like to see math and I like to see some shit. But you know what? I can find an asshole in a fucking room in a minute. I'll tell you that right now. Or I'll find a kid that like has never worked in a restaurant in his life, but is kind as hell and his eyes tell me or her eyes tell me that they're going to show up every day and, and I'm going to give them everything they have. And I don't need, you know, a perfect resume with 58,000 stodges on it to tell me what relationship is going to be mutually more beneficial. So I think those are the things, you know, like, you know, when we get older, I always hate when people have to burn down whatever they loved to make something they now love better. You know, you know, sometimes like in restaurants, you know, I know what happens with you and with me and people say, oh, you know, hear about this new restaurant, there's competition or there's, I'm like, dude, the Olympics are a fucking competition, man. Like we're in the restaurant business. I'm just trying to serve people, you know, in the block and, and you know, and, and, you know, invite people to our house and, you know, sometimes people think see me as not competitive. I'm, if I'm playing sports, I'm competitive in a way. I don't really give a shit who wins as long as I played hard. But in food, I, I've found the, the path so much easier, you know, to, to show my vulnerability to other chefs, you know, to tell them what I was afraid of or, or what I didn't really see working. Or, and, and I found that me doing that instead of posturing, like, yeah, how many covers are you doing? Oh, yeah, we're fucking turning. I can't even, you know, it, it's just this big big, you know, deflection of reality, you know, and I think those are the ills of our business. Like, but how does that, how does that show up in the food? You know what I mean? Like you go sit down, you eat your pizza, you eat your, what did we have? That mortadella that was wrapped around rosemary. Uh, that, that, that was well, delicious. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, Dave, this is how it happens. Phase two, like I'm at Santa Monica farmer's market on Wednesday and everything's already there. Tell me what it wants to be. Every market salad's there. What it tells me it wants to be. I got a friend of mine, that is a forager, Karen, in the market. And she's like measuring sugars on which stone fruit is it 21 bricks or whatever. And, and all of a sudden just connecting with like a bowl of apricots that all I have to do is pack them in ice water becomes perfection, sublime, textural, everything that we can gelatinize or rehydrate or whatever the fuck. All I had to do is recognize. So I think in the ability of, like, I've never invented a fucking thing in my life. I never invented anything. But I was able to use influence from many different places of all types of genres of art and film and, and you know, and, and cooking. And it's amazing how much they all make sense. You know, like you start with good shit and then you find, you know, OK, now I got a, I got a great song. I need great players and then I need a great acoustics and then I need great. So that's what I think in my food was appropriation. As we know, my language can be inappropriate for many of, uh, of my audience, mostly in my house, but sometimes <laughs> it's what I have to make a point, you know, or, or to be real to myself in a way. I mean, if I was like, you know, 
you know, I'm in a PTA meeting. I try whatever to, 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 to use all the nice words and slow down a little bit. But I'm to my, my pal Dave here. I'm excited. So I'm just going to let it flow. But I, I think all my food, this is a big, this is probably a big thing to answer your question. I know you know me. I know, I know I'm hard to follow, but, <laughs> but I think I told you the story already. But I remember way back in the day, I don't even know what year, it might have been 2005. It was a few years um, before Jean-Louis Pelletin uh, passed away. And uh, I remember Jean-Louis Pelletin and Daniel Ballou, Michelle Richard, uh, Roberto Donna was the one, one Italian in the month. And they all came to visit my little pizzeria. And I was like, what do I do? I'm a pizza man. You know, I don't have, you know, the, the truffles to go to or I can't, you know, bang out the, you know, the, the, the good shit. It, it, it's all really good shit, but it's the same good shit everybody else has. And I remember um, Jean-Louis Pelladin was one of the first guys like on a TV chef, like on PBS. That I remember seeing him speak and he was talking about, you know, you know, we have lambs in France. We have lambs in Virginia. I'm in Virginia. I'm going to use that lamb in Virginia. And I thought that that made a lot of sense for me that a guy using great French techniques, you know, was, was going to use something for his back, his backyard. And, and, and that made sense. And, and so when I went to like, what am I going to make these dudes? I'll never forget. I just let them order, which I always find out, you know, people want to bury you sometimes a chef with here's 15 fucking thousand plates. I was thinking these guys ate everything. They ate every tower of food. They ate every fucking, you know, variety of caviar. They ate everything that I could ever throw at them. So I'm just going to give them exactly what I make. And I remember making a marinara for Jean-Louis Pelletin. That's what he ordered. And he wanted a side of sliced mortadella. And I remember watching him eat it. And it was, uh, it was humbling because I noticed none of them really spoke. And they, they ate and they submitted to it. And they were, they were very generous, you know, with the things that they said. And I remember for some was very insecure. They gave me a sense of security that I was on the right direction, you know, and what I did in the narrow lane that, that I served. And I remember when it came to dessert, you know, like, again, what do you serve these cats from dessert? And, you know, back then I would serve like biscotti or fresh fruit or, and it just happened that day. I had this, uh, one of my neighbors actually brought me a huge box of loquats that were on the branch and they were fucking perfect. And they were just luscious and beautiful. And they were still like warm from the sun. And I remember like, I know what I'm going to do with that. I'm going to pack them in ice water. I'm going to brew some, some uh, apple mint that I had in the garden. I'm going to drop it in a bowl and watch these cats just dig at them like they're bobbing for apples and eat this perfection that all I had to do is rinse off. Not even rinse off, let the bowl rinse off. And he said some really nice things about that, you know, where, where you know, I didn't try to, you know, bring this Tower of Power thing that I didn't really make and put a bunch of squiggles on all over shit or whatever. But because it wasn't my thing, it was somebody else's thing. Beautiful. Not nothing against squiggles or big towers or nothing like that, but <laughs> but it wasn't my thing. I mean, I think those are hard for us to understand. Like we want those things. Like like I want my crazy mother. I want my crazy dad. I want my crazy brother. You know, that's my my. You know, I know what to expect. That's how I can navigate. And I think when people restaurants have been around for thirty some years, you want to do that thing. You want to go for that thing and and then serve that and then always attempt to, you know, to exceed the expectation, you know, because we're in a world, man, that's waiting for the shoe to drop. We know that. They're like, fuck, man, I'm not, I'm not going to invest too much in that because I know it's going away. I know this dude's selling out. I know it's, this space is going to be a, you know, a super Mercado mall one day or whatever. And, you know, I've done everything that I can do um, and will continue to let people invest their heart 
into things that are so simple that they love um, and try to hold on to that. So um, does that make sense, Dave? Not only did that make sense, I'm now going to have to tell everybody at the beginning of this podcast all about Jean-Louis <laughs> Paladin and Roberto Donna. And you're talking about some OGs. And clearly this was late 90s or like 2001. It was probably it was, before yeah. he passed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was probably six months before he passed. And he was still smiling. I remember he took a cab. Before he left, everybody else left, and it was just him, uh, John Louis Peladin, his, his girlfriend, and I remember he was sitting, still smoking a cigarette. And he, the last thing he told me was something I never forget, which was uh, we were talking about bread, and he was telling me his father was from was Italian, he was from Udine, and my mother's side of the family was from Udine and Friuli, and we had this the momentary like, oh no way, man! I, and he told me the way his dad always cut bread. We take these big mishas, and he would cut always towards his heart. And the way he said it was like so emphatic that he was tied into his dad. Maybe he was thinking about his own mortality, his dad, his life, and all the beautiful things, you know, uh, all the steak dinners, all the unbelievable things he probably made. He was pining for some loaf of bread that his dad was cutting with probably a not sharp enough knife against his heart. And I think those things, understanding, I think, as we get to the end of the skin and bone tour, what it'll be crying for, what it'll be remembering. And, and, and it's it's not that difficult to figure out, you know. Beautiful. I love I love you, Chris Bianco. I love you, I brother. I love you. you. You're such a beautiful man. <laughs> I love you I so much, man. That's such an amazing story. And I didn't even know about that. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Look to your left, look to your right. Yep, no one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay guaranteed fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Seed. Did you know that most green powders and probiotics don't survive digestion? Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic is engineered in a two-in-one capsule to safeguard viability through digestion for complete delivery to your colon. A broad-spectrum probiotic and prebiotic formulated with 24 clinically and scientifically studied strains for whole body benefits, including gut, heart, and skin health. Visit seed.com slash Dave Chang and use the code 25DAVECHANG to start seeding today. That's code 25DAVECHANG to start seeding today. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. How much of what you make is imported from Italy? Well, I tell you this, I still go through a shitload. I go through probably six wheels of Reggiano a week. Outside of Reggiano, because we can't do yeah. that here. Yeah. That alone, we can't. We just, for a lot of reasons we shouldn't get into, can't make parm. We can't make parm. If I can, you know, these are the things I'll bring from Italy, which are, um, I'll bring olive oil. I have a killer one from Puglia where my family's from there. And I, I bring that over. I use some, some, 
stuff in California when I can get it as well. There's a small producer in Arizona, but um, directly we import some from Puglia because I, I have this kind of romantic thing in my mind that maybe some of those 500-year-old trees somehow fed my family and it's already reconnected with my DNA. So I, I, that I bring in and we can bring that in on, on a slow boat sustainably. But um, olive oil, Reggiano, I'll bring a few, you know, uh, specialty cheeses. But other than that, like all our, obviously all our produce is from our local farmers, anything that's vulnerable, proteins. And um, my little place, Trotto, will do some sustainable stuff from West Coast or San Diego, some swordfish from San Diego or whatever. But we're, we're uh, again, for me, it wasn't I wasn't against whatever people do. But even back in the day, I just thought that this quick story, too, Dave. Which is uh, when I was working way when the day in the eighties and uh, uh, whenever it was in Santa Fe, uh, I was working at this little restaurant called Babo Gonzo, and I worked at this little restaurant and it was great. But across the across the hall was a place called Cafe Escalera. It was like David Tannis was the chef and Deborah Madison was a pastry chef, and uh, it made such an incredible impact. I mean, that was the first time I I saw a family meal, like Chez Panisse style family meal, you know, like where people would sit down pre service and all together, you know, and it was a beautiful thing to watch. And I remember like, uh, again, our, the, the technique with our restaurant was good, but we weren't getting the caliber of, of, of local produce that, 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 uh, Dave Tannis was bringing in. And, and, uh, I remember it was like late summer and I was having to do a market salad. I was like, fuck man, what are I going to make them in? The market was pretty lean. There was some amazing watermelon at the farmer's market, but really nothing else. All the greens were not great. And, and one of this dude, this dude, Rocky, um, he's, he had red hair. He's from Sinaloa, Mexico. He was one of our prep cooks, and he was awesome cat. And he said to me, man, all you dudes, man, you guys are trampling up by the, over by that dumpster. He said, there's a patch, a huge patch of vertilaga, purslane. This is dripping off that, right by that hose. All we need to do with that, that, that sandia, that watermelon, is pair that, that purslane and happy days. And to this day, I do a purslane, watermelon, red onion salad that came from that ideal of, you know, to get back to your, connect to your question, what I bring from Italy, well, what do I bring my fucking curb outside first? So I just want to make sure I'm not <laughs> trampling the, the garden that we live in. Sometimes it might just be dandelion greens. Sometimes it might be, you know, a purslane from outside or, or wild chiltepine or something. Like no matter where I ever go to cook, I mean, if we're in Idaho, bring me some potatoes, you know, we're in whatever, bring me what you got. And, and, and I would love to, like, I, you know, as you know, I did a project in London with Jamie. And the first thing I said is, man, let's get all the cool, wonderful, you know, cheesemongers, you know, uh, uh, we can involved. Let's get, you know, you know, forget my tomatoes. Let's go to the Isle of Wight where they grow tomatoes there. There's a little, you know, a small tomato production there. They grow some olives in, in Penzance at the tip of Cornwall. Um, you know, there's great grain varietals. Shipton Mill is a great miller there. So also now you can use technique that I've learned, Bronx, Via, here, Italy, California, wherever mutt that I am, and then go somewhere else and just say, fuck what I got. What do you got? That's and I why, think that's why, Chris, you're a modern chef, man. You as modern as they come. <laughs> Legit. Uh, well, you know what I mean? Because like hey, if you say it, I'm buying. I mean, <laughs> it is not it is very important for I think people to understand. Like, like that is you've spent a lifetime really learning about not just your craft, but the ingredients, the sourcing, the relationship, as you say, don't trample the garden that you live in. 
I mean, that sounds like a platitude, but it's not. And the fact is, what I have always admired about your food, even though I've tasted it elsewhere, but never in Phoenix until recently, is like, you never talk about the ingredients you import. You always talk about the ingredients you've discovered or the people that you're working with. Like your canned tomatoes, let's just say it. I'm not just saying this because they're the fucking best canned tomatoes you can get in, in America. You're not getting them from Italy. You could. Yeah. I mean, and, there's, I guess, I mean, and there's great ones, and there's great ones, and I'll just even interject in that one for a minute, is when I, we started that business, you know, with my partner Rob, who's, you know, third generation, grower, packer, yada, yada, you know, like most Italian immigrants went to Sac Valley and said, this fucking dirt looks awesome, let's plant in it and let's go. And I saw it as an opportunity, like wine regions, like I love Willamette Valley, I love Burgundy, I love well, South Africa, I mean, there's wine regions all over the world. And I love that idea of thinking about even Southern Arizona, man, and Wilcox, Sonoida, there's, you know, a small wine region. And I think about, as I look at the hostility of, of, of conditions or, 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 you know, somewhere in New Zealand, you know, in, in weather or in cold, that this, this, this season of 2017 that you lived through, or now 2020, imagine the bottles going to come out from that, you know, all the, all the intention or, or energy that's now harnessed and you uncork that three years later, you know, I've always been empowered by that. And I thought that, um, or, or I would say empowered by that. I would say I was always engaged with that, you know, and, and, you know, the other part about that little connection, like, you know, my dad was a, a painter and, you know, and, but he made his living by um, like most artists, got to, you know, you, you got to pay the bill. So he did a lot of commercial art for wine and liquor labels and things like that. And I was always fascinated by some of these liquor companies and things like they would spend so much money on market testing, you know, to, for people, you know, people tell them, give somebody 150 bucks, hundred people in the room, they're going to tell you what shit makes them angry or whatever, or what pops off the shelf. And for instance, on the tomato can, when he did that art for me, we did it together, but I, I wanted to make something that um, was sincere, was clear. We talked about the farmers, talked about where it's from, talked about the, the you know, the, the, uh, not the use by date, but the, but the harvest date. Like all the things that, that I needed to know. I wanted to make sure art was on the front and the information was on the back. So, so I, I think that, like, I don't want to spend, even with a, with a, I don't want to spend 23 minutes with an ugly ass wine label that I, you have to overcome, you know, this ugly wine label that they thought it was so awesome they didn't give a shit they just put some thing on i want something that you know maybe somebody's kid drew maybe somebody's wife scribbled on maybe it's the farm named after their grandmother their dog that you know uh, whatever you know so i think sincerity getting back to what i'm saying in 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 all things was attractive to me like that becomes that is under the undeniable category if it's sincere and authentic for me, it becomes undeniable and really unimportant how much I love it. If, if but Chris, that but person like it, really it ran, loves it. It ran counter and runs counterintuitive to a lot of what people think Italian food should be, or what good food should be, that, oh, it's got to be, it's not authentic if it's not from here. Right. And I'd argue that, and this is a lot, what I think a lot of people miss and, and why I, I hate authenticity, right? In me a lot too. of ways. I love it. No, no. I'm, I mean authenticity to the human being and not the fucking recipe, yeah. by the way. You know that. And, you know, and, and when it's there to preserve a story, but like, to what what I love is you're spending time to say like what is really maybe Italian or what is really good food is like literally what's around you first and foremost, yeah. right? Yeah, and even that, the stuff that you're importing, 
it is a story for you about maybe this is the same trees that your family used 500 yeah, right. years ago. That's beautiful, right. man. Right. And like, I mean, now everybody wants to have their own mill and their own flour and all this stuff. It's like your most central ingredients in a lot of the ways you develop those relationships in Arizona. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But I think th those are the things when you understand, like in Arizona, it's the, you know, it's the, you know, it, it is the largest exporter of durum wheat, pasta grain to Italy. You know, the Italians in the late 1950s, when there was a blight there, they came to Tubac, Arizona, um, you know, and then south of Tucson. Um, and they knew that, you know, some of the things that were in the way of disease or what was vulnerable, i.e. wind or, you know, certain type of infestation, that Arizona was a great place to grow. So there's a big carnation plant, you know, uh, on the I-10. We drive them to L.A. to Phoenix and carnation makes their own, I think, uh, Cremet brand, and then, you know, they send the grain from, you know, from uh, go from Galveston, Texas to to, to Naples and the Nebruzzi, and and then blended with probably Canadian and some Italian. It just, and it's all great. It's all great. But I think that I'm an idiot, and I'm saying is we got a lot of hungry people. If we're selling out for three ninety nine a box, what if we could learn and work together to, you know keep and mill and grow some of that grain. Like I still bring, I bring, speaking of this, I do bring one dry pasta in from Italy, a pasta from the market called Mancini. And I do that for the same reason that I I'll tell you about wine that, that uncork in that bottle. They, you know, they grow their own, they grow their own wheat, they mill it, they dry it meticulously. And I use it for very special things, you know? Um, like if you go to the pizzeria, only the pizzeria, uh, Italian country, the one you came to. Um, we do a spaghetti pomodoro with my tomatoes, but they're pasta. And I love that kind of, um, it, it's some way counterintuitive until we talk about it. So it's even like the tomatoes, man. There's a, there's a, I think it's called Tutoroso brand in uh, Neapolitan, uh, a San Marzano brand. It's fantastic. I would say it's as good as mine, if not better in, in its own way. If better to you means longer San Marzano tomatoes. Because those with a maritime climate, with the, that particular varietal, it's like a Russian banana type, you know, uh, tomato. We can't grow that really up in, where it's 105 degrees in Sac Valley, you know, and, and you know, um, you know, it's got a fruit quicker. It's got a, we have to harvest quicker. But again, like the wine thing, I find that I don't have to hate San Rosanos that are great. I have in my little half-assed little wine cellar, I got a few bottles from all over. All I want to be, just like we talked at the beginning of this, just like heaven or eternity, I want to be fucking invited to the party. I want the tomatoes that we do to find, to be in the world's greatest pantry. From, you know, I've got Malden salt, which I love. I've got, you know, uh, Florida salt from Brittany. I've got, you know, um, uh, 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 from, from Tropini. What I use now in LA, I've got a great salt from Colimas, Mexico, which is amazing, you know, flake salt from Mexico. Because it's, it, it, we're here, we're part of this. So bringing some Malden in, maybe even though it's one of my favorites, and I love Essex and it reminds me of England and all that stuff. I, I try to do something, no matter where I am. Again, bringing appropriation to the situation, and, and and those are just things that you know we're just so quick. I think in our society, you know, looking for sound bites and proclaiming the fucking best and the worst and the list and the thing that we really don't dive in. We don't ask the right questions. Here we are talking now, but people. You know, I find, I'm sure you do too, a lot of times people come up to you and say, I mean, that was amazing. 
And you say, well, what did you really like about it? And then they're fucking, then there's deer in the headlights. Like, they don't know what they like about it. Or they'll say, fuck, man, I went there. I didn't, you know, a lot of times some of my younger chefs will go to another restaurant and maybe to make me feel better. Say, oh, that fucking thing, that place wasn't even that good. And you say, what wasn't good about it? Oh, you couldn't get in for an hour? Oh, you didn't like anchovies? And now it sucks? That's not, that's, that's short-sighted, not fair, and ridiculous. So I think asking the right questions, like in our society, when we look at our political, our, our government, how this should happen, then we learn about like, you know, voting for the street sweeper to the, to the mayor of a small city um, maybe makes an impact that we didn't really realize years ago. So um, yeah, we got to, to get the right answers, we got to ask the appropriate questions. Can you tell everybody, tie everything you've been talking about so beautifully together, the story of your Sicilian pie, uh, the Sicilian pistachio pie, Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an I'll awesome story. And, and, and is it going to make the L.A. menu? <laughs> it is. Oh, yeah, definitely. So the nighttime menu will be the exact menu of my downtown original pizzeria. My six original pizzas, Rosa, Sunny Boy, Wise Guy, Marinara, Margarita, Bianco Verde. Um, it'll have an antipasto, which it's just, usually just four vegetables at the market. We try not to fuck them up. It'll have some, it'll have, you know, some charcuterie. It'll have a little bit of cheese. That'll be there. The spidini, which you have with the prosciutto and the fantina. And uh, we'll have few, maybe one other dish I'm thinking about that uh, is unique to, to L.A. in that way. But it'll be it'll definitely play in all the hits with that. But the story of the Rosa, that one, is uh, a perfect example. Is I never invented anything. It was, I don't know, 35 years ago, I was in Fina Ligure in a little focaccia. And this particular focaccia, you know, uh, sometimes in, in parts of Italy, particularly this one in, in uh, Liguria, where like they're famous for the focaccia genovese, um, the thicker one, and, and it's fantastic and delicious. But they just called everything that wasn't a classic Neapolitan pizza focaccia. And their focaccia in this case was, it was two brothers, and their, their little focaccia was here, and their dad had a San Maria next door. So you got two menus on your little table, and you could order... Um, one of like four focaccia. And then you said, oh, I'm going to have uh, the deer, the, you know, uh, prosciutto and, uh, and, uh, and, and the, uh, this culatello and some Toscana, whatever. And you get three or four salumi and you get some focaccia, which is, was thin pizza, not thick. And the one that blew my mind was there was one with grana and just sesame seeds. And it fucked me up so bad. There was nothing else on it. It was, it was, it was, uh, it was uh, sublime. It was uh, it was it was naked. It was it was uh, it took as it. I saw it as something that took such great confidence. And when I went back, I remember like by by the time I got back to Arizona, I'm like, dude, I'm gonna I'm gonna make that. And I I I remember you know I got some grana and I got some sesame seeds that you know by the time they got to Arizona, you know, in 110 degrees, probably on a shelf somewhere, at whatever distributor for God knows how long. They just weren't right. And you know, the vulnerability of fatty things, seeds and nuts and things that they can be off. Chickpeas is a great example of that. Like when we look for chickpea flour, but so I went back and I made it and, and it just was not even close. It just did not do justice. You know, the, the, the grana that I got really did, didn't, didn't really have uh, the texture or the first couple of takes I grated too fine and threw the fat too quickly. And so I said, I'm going to try a young Reggiano instead of the grana. And so I tried like a 24 to 30 month Reggiano. And I said, I'm going to do a really, like if you get a little box grater, your, your core is great. 
boom, boom, boom. Get on the course, great. That's the big, if there's a secret, that's not a secret, that's it. We try to make that one, man, just grade it coarsely. Just grade it coarsely because you want to think about, like, in any situation, you don't want to finish too quickly. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> old guy, kind of humor that. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> grade it coarsely. And, um, and then the next thing would be your onions, you know, like the rosa, which is like pink in Italian. Yeah, that's where that comes from, which is, uh, uh, you know, sliced thin on a mandolin. And then I just toss them a little bit of extra virgin olive oil, season them with, you know, with just some flake salt, maybe a turn of black pepper. Not too long, so they don't start to wilt down from the salt. But just like right pre-service, they're seasoned. Your cheese is ready to go. Your rosemary, it, in a perfect world, it's on the stem until order fire. And then you assemble it, and it's boom. The cheese, boom. A handful of Reggiano, boom. Just enough, you know, putting things where they ain't, as I always say. So you're putting things, you're watching where the cheese fell, which will always be better when you put it. You know, you'll see the peaks and valleys of it, and you'll put, you'll appropriate, you know, the, the cheese, the, the onion, which, again, came from my influence. The onion came on. The onion came on. Now, the pizza or the focaccia that inspired me had two ingredients. And when I made it, some reason, besides the sesame, it just tasted flat. It just tasted like it needed something for me, something else in what I was using it for. And uh, I immediately had this flashback of growing up in New York of Bialis. And I remember as a kid, there was a, there was a, the, like an old Jewish bakery in the Bronx that had, um, that had these Bialis. And if no one was looking, you know, I'd get three or four, my mom would get them and I would just rip the centers out and they would have these little minced onions that I, I, I was crazy about. And I still dig them. And, um, and they were pink. They're always red and they were just uh, um, texturally did something for me and whatever. So I was like, okay, man, we'll pop a little, we have the two ingredients, see what it needs. Still not there. You know, the onions, now there's texture. There was no herbs when I had it. It was just two ingredients and it was perfect. But the nuttiness of the sesame, just, you didn't need anything else. So I had some, like Arizona, like, Everywhere you go to the library, you know, that's where I spend most of my time. But uh, the library, there's, there's uh, tons of rosemary outside. All the kind of, uh, it's everywhere. Along with, you know, the little, my little pizzeria, we, we have tons of fruit cheese and all kinds of herbs and stuff outside. So um, some, the upright rosemary, a little bit of rosemary. They have the red onions now. Bring the Bali hybrid in along with what I saw in Italy. And, um, happy days. We're almost there. So I, uh, <laughs> way back in the day when the agriculture department in Arizona had a little bit of money, now they're fucking got no money. Like all the, all the government office, when they had a little tiny bit of money, they used to print these, um, like farm to table guide or farmer's guide to Arizona. It was like, they go to the four corners all over the state. They tell you each region, what season, what you had, you know, ranchers, fruit, stone fruit, yada, yada. So just, and uh, I looked down in Southern Arizona and I found pecans and tons of pistachio growers, or at least there was like four good ones. And uh, I'm like, I'm in. I never do things for color, like brown fucking food is brown and I'm good with it. But in this case, like when I got these pistachios, they were so bright and they were beautiful and they were uber fresh. And again, all I could do is fuck them up. You know, they were perfect. And, and so now what do I do? I'm certain, oh, that's too much. So we'll just give them a little bath boop, 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 with the mortar and pestle, just enough where you get some powder and you get some whole crumbles. And, and so, boom, order fire, 
put your onions, your rosemary, your reggiano in the oven, then halfway through the bake so the pistachios don't scorch, add like your little sprinkle, and it's better to fucking throw them and try to place them. Just throw them, they'll hit. If you eat 10 of them over a year, they'll each taste a little different, which is cool. So, you know, scatter of the pistachios, fall wherever they want to fall. And, um, you know, all in about a three-minute bake. And even on that, Dave, is getting the influence of that. And then just saying, you know, just like you were saying, the authenticity. When someone, you know, when people who's coming back and they, how about your oven? You're from Naples, you know, all that stuff like that. And again, I love I love Naples. I love Anthony Mangieri's the different. I love what everybody does, but it's not what I do. So again, being just truthful to the mutt that I am or, or from a cooking perspective, I wanted to appropriate my growing up in New York with a great bake, like you would bake a bread. If you didn't know shit, you just said, I like crispy. I like crunchy. I want it to yield. I don't know any of the words. I don't know all the least. I don't know this. I don't know that. But I know, I know shit that tastes like I want it to taste. And, and ironically, when I talk to young chefs, I ask them, you know, what can they cook? Can they make an omelet? Can you make an omelet in a pancake? Man, you're, you're golden right there. Then you can move the roasted chicken. You're, you're pretty much can do anything from that point. So at, I found like anything above like a 750 floor temperature would give me an accurate profile that I wasn't crazy about. So with the wood fire, like I never used the thermometer. I still don't use it now. In LA, we have one on the side just because it came with the oven. But I find that you, 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 you watch that too much. Like kind of like uh, they lie temperature sometimes, you know. I would say like they measure ambient temperature sometimes or where they hot or they can be inconsistent, but watching things and you responding to like a little scatter of flour in the oven and watch it smoke, you know, it's too damn hot. You know, watch something goes in, it's sticking. Well, you know, it's too hot. So I think, you know, you learn things when you burn things always. And I think those are the tools. Like my brother's a very technical baker. Um, great, you know, Chad, my brother, uh, Robertson, great technical baker. I'm not a technical baker. I was a little bit of a contrarian and still am only in the fact that I found through experience when people say, oh man, you never do, or you know what you need to do. I'm like, mm, I'm going to try this first. I'm going to get back to what I need to do. But, you know, like somebody told me back in the day, they said, dude, man, you never use extra virgin olive oil in a, in a marinara because it'll scorch. And I'm like, well, that sounds like it came from the guy that owned the restaurant, not the chef for sure. There's worry about food costs, which, you know, uh, you know, I'm still working. Obviously, I'm not worried about food costs. But, um, but, uh, but I think that that, so those things we hear, the never do's, like when you learn, I would say like, you know, whether it's a rumor, a tomato, politician, whatever, consider the source, you know, consider the source of that propaganda that we're going to fucking re, you know, gurgitate and, and tell others and, and what we never do. And, you know, with a lot of young chefs, I try to empower them with, with, you know, oh, you're from a farm in Iowa and you make that dude, you could, man, you already, you're already way ahead of somebody, you know? So, so, you know, reestablishing, not breaking, like when we were younger, we were broken down and then rebuilt in the image of whatever service that was best for something else. But I think with some of these young kids that, you know, uh, I find that our relationships will become more long-term. And, and healthier if I was can able reinforce that, dude, you're here because, man, there's some good shit about you. And I got some shit that might help you and we might be able to help each other. And you'll be able to teach me some things. And if you're open to it, I'll show you what I know. And there, and here we are now, Dave Chang, talking about crazy shit like that. Well, Chris, I'm going to tell you the truth. I think that was the best 
No bullshit. The best. <laughs> I've heard so many fucking stories about recipes, man. <laughs> uh, you know, you too. That was single-handedly the best res- re- recollection of why you have a dish or why a dish was made I've ever fucking heard. Truth, man. The truth will set you free, man. It just does it, you know? And I've been, I've been blessed. I've been, you know, I've been so blessed and so fortunate in my life, you know? And, and even with all the hard days, even with all the hardest days, man, like, you know, I've, I've worked like we all have in our quiet time, hard. You know, but but don't get it twisted that I don't know that I've been incredibly lucky. And so with that luck and that good fortune, I do find it the most minimum that I can do is share that with others. You know, that they can they can go, God damn, I remember that shit myself. I remember now I'm thinking about grouping Vermont and the pancakes and like all of a sudden they're thinking about bacon differently and crispy and how, how do I like it or, you know, or a method that they could hold it when guests came over. I think if we can engage, like use our reference, you know, along with you know, new experience. We'll make some headway in this game. We'll make it. We're going to do it, Dave. Dude, Chris, no bullshit. <laughs> this I is awesome. You, I mean, <sighs> like one of the favorite podcasts we've had was when we had the Pulitzer Prize winner, Jerry Salsa, art critic on, right? Talking about what a modern artist is. Not only are you a modern chef, you're a modern artist. And I know your dad, you, you know, recently passed and he was an extraordinary artist. Mm. You are an artist too, man, legitimately. You are a legitimate artist that does it with food and you gift it to people that come to your restaurant. I don't blow smoke up your ass. You know, I'm know. just telling hey, you the I'm, truth. Well, you know what, man? I will say the thing about artists. I, I, I will say how I see artists. And I think that we all think our problem is so fucking unique and nobody understands us. And everybody understands us, dude. Everybody understands the same shit. We love, we lost, we live, we die. The people we love, no one gets out alive. So we know that shit we can start looking at shit a little bit different, you know, less, like less precious. So therefore more precious, you know what I'm saying? Like the other shit is just shit. The things we love, like, like my dad, when he passed, he left the, the literally the paintings on my wall, you know, and in the house him and my mom lived in, they have and the little house with my mom. Still. So it's now, but, but God bless him. He died the richest man I knew because he left it all in the field. He gave it all the way. He just, you know, and I think what I hope for him, you know, not because he's my dad, but, you know, I'm going to be a little bit of a homer here, but I'll tell you this right now. I, I was funny. I just came back from the, I was just in Chicago and I went to the Art Institute and just saw some amazing art and was very moved by it. But I came back saying that, you know, what a blessing in, in my life to be exposed to, for me, a generational painter like my father that um, came from a place that was not inspiring of its art but if it's it's thirst for art it's gave you a thirst to find the water you know what i'm saying it didn't it, you weren't growing up fat in the you know in the i would say it's about melons as great as california melons are the only thing i will say about arizona and we have great farmers there the greatest melons i've ever tasted the sweetest are in the most desperate conditions you know like in Yuma, in, in, in Gila Bend. And, you know, there's just something about them and they give it all to the fruit. And sometimes you go somewhere where it's so lush, you know, they'll be beautiful and they're really good, but they don't get that desperation. You know, they don't feed that thirst in a way that becomes, you know, I'm going to give everything to the most important asset. And, and I think that's why I look at my dad, like, you know, that he had something profound in him. You know, and, and I think that it's funny. I'm sure with other kids, man, you'll see some stupid shit your kids do now that 
God damn, that's my fucking stupid face my dad made or your grandfather made or, you know, my, my mother's father be my great grandfather. Uh, when he came from Carrara, he was a marble cutter. He went to go work up in, in Providence uh, on uh, the state capital that was on marble. So if you were Italian, he would cut marble, whatever, you got a job. And then he worked at the Bronx Zoo. And that's how he made his way to the Bronx on the gates there. But uh, like I would say, I burnt my kids, I burnt all my fingers. They, don't need, they only need to burn eight. And their kids can burn six and five and four. Then we can stop burning our fingers, man. You know, we can stop burning our fingers and we can start making some headway. And that's what I, that's what I'm here to do. You know, I want to, I want to keep pushing this thing forward and making, you know, you know, keeping, keeping the things that are of worth that we hold on to and just, you know, open the window and let the other shit get where it needs to get. Dude, Chris, this is the best, man. Uh, and you're sweating. I'm sweating. This fucking, this, I'm in my neck. So, so I'm in my neighbor, Kelly and Eric's beautiful house, but they're out of town. But I don't, the AC, I don't even know where the AC thing is. So I'm here sweating like a mule for the people. <laughs> well, <laughs> for listen, you, man. Dave. For you. But you know what? Even in that sweat, I think just like the melon itself, Dave, just like the melon in Yuma right now, that's, you know, in the triple digits saying, well, I get picked. Well, I get harvested. And then, you know, you're on somebody's, you know, table out of, on French linen with a prated prosciutto and everybody's rolling their eyes back. It'll all be worthwhile. So hopefully that'll be the case. Hopefully I'll be your melon, Dave. And uh, that's what I got for you. Bianca, <laughs> your, your autobiography should be called Desperate Conditions. That's, right, that's going right. to begin. We'll that's going to begin. All right. You, if you do the forward, I'll do it. <laughs> um, man, like, <laughs> legitimately, I, I'm so happy, people. Like, because, you know, you're out there in the world, but no, I, I think, you know, you've done this pop before, but this is like, Real people get to see you now. You know what I mean? Like for better or worse. This yeah, is this is this is. I'm glad people get to see why you're so beloved, and 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 the, and the insight and the mind that you have. Like it is one of a kind. It's as original as they come, and I love you to death. And I mean that not just as your friend, but somebody that's admired you. I think you are a goddamn national treasure. Thank you for everything you do. I'm so happy that you deserve you 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 deserve everything and then some and I'm I'm happy that Los Angeles is getting you down at the row. Yeah. Um yeah. by the time this comes out it'll, it'll be open to the public. Yeah. And uh they're going to get something that is specifically for Los Angeles regardless. They will. They will and uh I, like I said it didn't need it but I needed it and um it's uh it's been a really therapeutic scenario for me and it's 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 uh it's, it's been pretty magical and it's, it's uh, kind of still tethered to where I'm from and where I'm going, where I am. And I think that's, you know, just that kind of whole kind of little bicycle chain happening has been really making me go. I love you, man. Love you, brother. On my heart. Grateful love to the family. And uh, those are our life's riches, right? Yes, sir. Okay, man. That was our interview with Chris Bianco. Hopefully you guys got some beautiful nuggets of wisdom from that beautiful, beautiful man. And again, that description of him coming up with the Rosa pizza is just uh, makes me weep. I'll be honest, man. That was one of the best description of coming up with a dish, a form of expression of creativity of Chris being an artist that I've ever heard. And I, and I really mean that. And uh, I hope people follow their own path and, the fact that a, a kid from New York can wind up in 
Phoenix, Arizona, cooking some of the best food around. It's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful thing. And he does beautiful. He's just a, I, I love him to death. Anyway, um, it's late. I've been traveling. I just got back from Las Vegas and I wanted to record this. And I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you guys on the next podcast where we do a deep dive into the interview with Chris Bianco. Give us five stars.